As a vegan, do you ever feel like you're living in a parallel universe, aware of things that many others don't even seem to notice, let alone acknowledge? I'm Chrissy Benson, host of the Vegan Posse podcast. We talk with vegans from around the globe who, like you, are living lives of integrity and compassion with an eye toward justice through their personal stories. You'll come to see that you're not an outlier. In fact, you're part of an entire posse of individuals who aren't just keeping the peace, they're creating it through their food choices and beyond. You won't be saddling up, but you're in for the ride of your life. Welcome to the Vegan Posse. Hey, Posse. Are you a reader looking for vegan-friendly entertainment? My new novel, Marrying Myself, is a vegan romance with a mysterious twist. It's been described as the anti-romance romance, and veganism plays an integral part in the plot and in the ultimate big reveal. You can find Marrying Myself at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual spots. And if you would, please leave a nice review on Amazon. It'll help make a bestseller out of Chicklet that cares about actual chicks. Thank you so much. And now, on to our interview with vegan therapist Kylia Rorabaugh. This is the interview that put me on the path to become a clinical mental health counselor. Today, the Vegan Posse welcomes Kylia Rorabaugh. Kylia is a licensed professional counselor in private practice in Kansas City, Missouri. Kylia has been mostly vegan for 11 years and fully vegan for seven. Cats are her favorite animals, and she's got two, a tiny tabby named tapioca and a not-so-tiny orange-striped kitty named marmalade. Kylia has been married for 21 years and has two boys, a seventh grader, and a sophomore in high school. Kylia's family all eat mostly vegan, but her older son is completely vegan, just like she is. Kylia, welcome to the Vegan Posse. Are you ready for the ride of your life? I am. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, it's great to have you. So why don't we jump in? Why don't you tell us your vegan story? How, How and why did you end up going vegan? All right. Well, I decided, uh, like I said, 11 years ago, I decided that, you know, I wanted to um, improve my health. And there were some significant health issues within my own family and my, my own health journey. And I thought, okay, I think this is the path for us. And so I researched over and over again, I had so many books and was just totally enthralled with the whole lifestyle and process. And when I started off, I thought, well, you know, this is going to be kind of difficult and I've never eaten like this before. And so though I love plant-based eating, that hasn't been the direction. And so what is this going to be like? And I kind of had the anticipation it was going to be a very, very difficult journey. And so I thought, well, I'll kind of start off pretty easy. I'll, I'll do all vegan at home, but if I'm at a restaurant or I'm at somebody's house, then I'll be okay eating whatever they provide. And it didn't take me long to realize I wasn't going to be okay with that because through the process of learning about health and learning about what I was putting in my body in a far deeper level, I decided there was no way that I could keep eating those foods. And so even though, um, even, you know, it seems like that process was, you know, four years, well, gosh, 11 years versus seven, um, it really transitioned very quickly. And it was maybe a once a year thing when, you know, at Thanksgiving or on a trip or something of that nature. 
And what I really realized is not only did I feel so much better, but I also recognized not just the health piece. I didn't want to have anything to do with hurting any creature. I didn't want to have anything to do with things that would um, take life away from something else so that I could eat it. It just, it, it rubbed me the wrong way. And that grew over time. And really um, the process for my family, my husband grew up a, a complete meat eater in a family where they didn't eat any plants at all. And so his transition was, he realized, wow, this is really great eating and I love it. And he transitioned pretty easily. It was a complete surprise for me. And then my kids really grew up. My youngest was very little. And so they both grew up realizing this is really good way of eating to the point where now they make the comments about, oh, well, isn't it great that we eat the way we do? And ultimately led to um, really a, a dynamic within our family that it's not a fight and it's not um, something weird anymore. It's just the way we are and everybody's pretty, pretty happy with it. So that's kind of in a nutshell, my, my journey. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I definitely would like to hear more about your family's experience eating vegan. Um, but, but before we get to that, I'm curious as to how going vegan affected your counseling practice. Oh, great question. I love to talk about this actually, because um, I started counseling back in 2005. And so I've been at it for a while. And I was always really interested in how the whole body works, not just the mental part, not just the physical part, but really the integration. Well, early on in my counseling days, I tried to do a lot of research, but it was research of, you know, how protein can feed the mind or how not eating donuts and drinking soda can feed, you know, can help the, the mental process. And it kind of stopped there. It wasn't going into depth or in detail. Well, over the course of my counseling practice and career, I have learned in such specific ways how important the overall food um, uh, plate that you're putting in front of you every day, everything that you put into your body affects you from a mental perspective. And I recognized and, and over the course of time of studying and looking, I mean, if you look up the research on how food and, and lifestyle overall, not just what we put in, but the way that we approach life and what we drink and the sunshine, I mean, all of those things too, but really focusing in on the food component, I, I started to notice that my clients who ate a plant-based diet or who transitioned to a plant-based diet or who even just increased their level of eating plants, they improved at a different level. And here's something else that's really important. One of the things that I do work with people a lot on, a lot of times I'll have people coming to me who've been in therapy for a long time and many of them are medicated when they come to me. And that's not something that I think is um, a practice that is the best for people most of the time. And so one of the things that I work with a lot of my clients on is withdrawal. Well, what better way to set your body up for the withdrawal process, which is very difficult, than to create the most, most ideal situation within your body than to eat things that foster that health. And so people who are eating a plant-based diet, the withdrawal process is vastly different. They are able to deal with the, the side effects 
oftentimes the withdrawal isn't even as significant because of what they're fueling their bodies with. So it's something I talk to my clients about on a regular basis and not all of them are vegan. Although I've had some people come to me because they say, I can't open up completely. I can't talk to somebody who's on a completely different side and doesn't get the way that I live and the way that I eat and the way that I think. And so that too has, has allowed me to um, be a part of people's journey because we connect on that level too. And that's, I mean, it's a significant part of our lives. So that's how it, um, it, it's a, it's a big part of my counseling practice. So tell me this, are your clients blindsided when they come to you for help with psychological issues and you talk to them about diet and nutrition, or are most of your clients already predisposed toward changing how they eat? Uh, I wouldn't say they're blindsided because it's actually something that I tell people about before they come to see me. Um, not that I don't present, you know, by the way, I'm vegan, just so you know, I don't do it like that. But in my paperwork that I provide people, I let them know it's going to be a part of the process because I think it's such an integral part of the process. You, you could come in and say, I'm dealing with depression, for example, and maybe I could give you some tools and I probably could give you some tools. But the reality is, is if you're taking tools, but your toolbox is faulty, well, then your tools aren't really going to have a place to go, or they're not going to be protected, or they're going to fall apart. And so it, it's something that I outline in the beginning. And again, it's not that I put my paperwork on vegan, by the way, but people come in knowing that that's going to be part of the conversation. Um, and so they're not blindsided, although over the course of time, a lot of times, you know, I'll introduce a piece of that and it grows over time when they, and this may sound kind of funny, but probably people will wreck it, will understand, um, you know, if a, a lot of times people have this stigma or this idea about, oh, vegans are so weird. And I think that's gotten a lot better at, you know, at this point in time, but, um, but they recognize, okay, maybe you're not quite such an odd person anyway, <laughs> you know, some of the things we're working on make a lot of sense. And so that opens them up to the conversation. And a lot of times I kind of think, oh gosh, I'm not sure how this person is going to take it based upon the way they're living right now. And when, when we build that rapport, it's really a natural process to be able to bring that into the conversation. And people oftentimes are so much more open to it than I even would anticipate. That's so interesting. And that makes, that of course makes so much sense to me because of course, our brains are in our bodies. So our brains can't really be any healthier than our bodies are, but right. mental health and the world of psychological counseling has become so divorced from yes. nutrition considerations. So I'm just wondering if you find that challenging, just being oriented in that direction? Do you find yourself swimming upstream or have you just connected with a whole world of people who recognize the value of nutrition when it comes to psychological well-being? Mm, okay. So, um, I would say there's a couple of different answers to that because with some people, it does feel like I'm swimming upstream and I never reach them in that regard. They stick to what they want to eat and the way that they want to live from a from a physical perspective, and I don't make progress. And ultimately, some people say, "Well, this isn't working." And sometimes I have to say, "Okay, I think that it 
it would work if we would follow it or we would actually go the direction that I'm, I'm attempting to lead us in because I think ultimately that's gonna bring success. Um, and it has to be a willingness on the part of the other person um, and, and so clearly there are going to be people I don't reach and people who have left because they don't like that component or don't feel like it's producing the, um, viable solution. Now, of course it's not, people are not coming to me for nutritional counseling, but the insertion of it into the conversation, I would say it's rare, but some people don't like it and don't want anything to do with it. And so in that regard, there's some up, up, upstream swimming, um, I do have a very big base of people who are already inclined in that direction. So I have lots and lots of plant-based clients um, who it fits so perfectly into the conversation and they're already doing it, which introduces an, an, a unique opportunity because they're already there and what that does is the foundation is set, but we can always make it better. We can always foster it even more. And so um, I, I think, you know, those people really are at a great, great advantage because we already have the foundation set and we can work with that. And then there's another group of people who kind of sit in the middle. They're not a, totally opposed to it. They're not totally on board with it, but they're open to it. And that's a really great group of people to work with too, because it opens their eyes to, oh my goodness, I have something else at my fingertips that I didn't even realize. Mm -hmm. And so when they open up that door and recognize that I don't have to have any special equipment, I don't have to take a pill, I don't have to, you know, the recognition that it's within me, I have the opportunity to utilize the beauty and the the nutrition of plants to help me from a psychological perspective, how great is that? Because it doesn't cost me any extra money and I don't have to go out and buy some weird thing. It's just life. So that group of people is especially fun to work with because oh, seeing their eyes open up to that is, um, it's exciting to, to help somebody recognize that. So that is so fascinating and inspiring. Um, what kind of issues do you see people for? Like, what are the issues that you, you notice a lot of people struggling with these days? Um, probably the two most predominant issues would be, um, anxiety and depression. I mean, I see countless individuals who are struggling in that regard. I do, um, work with a lot of people dealing with PTS, um, I don't put the D on there because I don't think it's a disorder, natural <laughs> response to trauma. Yeah. Um, so you see a lot of that. And, um, and then also a lot of family and, and couples um, right now with just the state of the world, there's a lot of division even within families. And so I do a lot of that as well. Um, and there's been an increasing number of kids that I, that I work with. And again, it, it, a lot of it ha is housed in that anxiety and depression group. I work with, with people from all walks of life all over the place and for pretty much any kind of issue. But those are the central ones that I'm seeing more of than anything else right now. Mm -hmm. And how do you inject nutrition into the conversation? That seems very challenging since you're not a nutrition coach. I'm just curious yeah. what that looks like. Yeah. So um, that's another thing that I introduce in my initial paperwork that I give people. I let them know that I have a lot of training in diet and lifestyle as well, because I've done 
um, a lot of study in that realm. And, and so I, I introduce it that way just so that they know that that's a piece of where I'm coming from. And then um, during the counseling process, what I typically will do is I will just insert it organically. And what I mean by that is I don't have like a, uh, a checklist of, okay, so when somebody comes in, I'm going to ask them this, 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 and this. And I actually, I used to do that. I used to have like a template of all the things that I would ask people. And really what that would produce is a very sterile answer. It was very like, yeah, this is, this is what I do. Or, you know, I mean, it wasn't expansive. It didn't provide an invitation to really have conversation. And so what I found over the years is it's far better to insert that comment in an organic moment. So what I mean by that is, Maybe somebody's talking about the anxiety that they feel um, getting up in the morning and walking out of their house and taking a walk where there are maybe there are people around. Or maybe somebody is so depressed they can't get out of bed in the morning to even get anything done. Well, that would be a really great opportunity to say, okay. I don't think we should set this big, enormous goal that, well, of course, what you need to do is you need to get up and you need to um, sit and meditate and have a cup of coffee. And then you need to move. You need to get out. And then, you know, this big checklist that's overwhelming to somebody who's in that kind of a position. But if I say, okay, Sally, um, I think what we need to start with is just getting out of bed in the morning and fixing yourself a bowl of fruit. Now, this is just an example, obviously. But if I suggest something like that, it's doable. It's understandable. It doesn't require some big tool. It doesn't require um, an enormous amount of willpower. Now, it's a step. It's still a challenge, but it's doable and it's at people's fingertips. And that would be something that if, if I say, Sally, do you think you can do that? And if that's all we do is the first step, do you think that you can do that? Well, yeah. Okay. Well, it may seem like, well, why am I doing this? I'm dealing with depression and not being able to get anything done. Well, that's a really big problem. That's a really big um, monumental goal. We're not going to talk about that right now because it will overwhelm you and subsequently set you up for failure. So how's about we focus on something you can do? And why do I bring that up? Well, I bring that up because that is going to fuel your mind, even if, even if for a brief period of time. So if we can fuel your mind, essentially what we've done is we have opened up the door for you to take another step. But for right now, all we're going to focus on is getting up and having that bowl of fruit. Or here's another example. Um, again, if somebody is dealing with, and depression is an easy one to because everybody's familiar with it, you kind of, you know, easy to identify. Um, if somebody is, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm so exhausted, uh, emotionally exhausted, mentally exhausted, physically exhausted. So I come home from work and all I can do is just lay on the couch and eat potato chips. Okay. Well, that makes sense. You know, you're working a lot or, you know, whatever, bringing up the things that, you know, that, that makes, that makes sense. Do you think, I wonder if, I wonder if we didn't do potato chips. I understand you want a snack. I wonder if instead of the potato chips, we could try and I might insert a, you know, maybe, maybe you could have a, a little bit of a meal or, you know, some kind of a snack that's not potato chips, for example. 
Um, what do you think? I mean, do you think you might try that? Because what I've noticed is that when I'm fueling my mind with nutrients instead of something that probably, you know, probably doesn't make your stomach feel very good. It probably, yeah, I mean, I feel awful after I eat that bag of chips. Okay. Well, how about we just try something else and let's test it out. You know, it might not work. We might need to come up with a different tool, but I wonder if we start with that, if we'd see a difference, would you be up to trying that? Those would be, you know, they've already brought something up. It's a habit that they're not pleased with or that they know makes them feel awful. There's a perfect organic opportunity to introduce something, not through judgment, not saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're eating chicken wings. How could you do that? That's so just, I mean, obviously I'm not going to come across that way, but it introduces an idea. It kind of plugs in an idea. And then also, um, when I, over, you know, like over the, the process, people recognize that I might plug little things in and they, they will then subsequently ask, well, it seems like, you know, something about nutrition or, you know, I have a physical question that kind of pertains to my struggle emotionally. Do you know anything about that? So, so planting the idea in their minds, because that's, I, I tell them that from the beginning starts that process. And then I will look for the organic opportunities to insert it. And people just kind of learn over time that that's a part that's, it's just a natural part of my practice. And so it doesn't feel like a, Hey, wait a second, I'm coming to you for my depression. Why are you talking to me about my health? Like what, you know, so I try to merge those two things in an organic fashion, rather than we're talking about nutrition. And now we're talking about your mental struggle. So when you're in the world of other mental health professionals, how do you, how do you feel? How do you fit in with your approach? Uh, not very well, to be quite honest. Um, I kind of stick out for a number of reasons, but, but that is one that I, I do like to integrate the physical or the, the nutritional piece. Another thing that I stick out like a sore thumb is I don't suggest or recommend medication. And that is not, not the norm in my profession at all. And so um, those two things really do kind of put me outside of the circle of the norm. Um, quite honestly, I don't know of any other practitioners. Now, this is not, this doesn't mean that they don't exist, but I don't know of any practitioners personally that integrate it in this fashion. If they integrate it, it's more kind of like what I said in the beginning. Oh yeah, your physical health, sure. Um, it, it has something to do with your mental health. So, you know, drink lots of water and it's all about moderation. And, um, you know, you should probably not eat donuts every day. It's, it's more that kind of advice, very general, really not meaningful. And subsequently doesn't make any difference for people. So it's kind of slept aside as, well, yeah, of course I believe that, but there's no place for it in practice. So that's kind of the, kind of the way that I fit in. I just don't really. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, to me, just from my perspective, it seems enormously frustrating when, when you and I both know the power that those healthy choices have in terms of our emotional well-being to not right. see them harnessed, you know, on a regular basis in the world of mental health is just 
really, really ridiculous. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. And it is frustrating. Um, do you see hope for a shift in a more holistic direction, a more just organic direction? Mm -hmm. I do, because I do see on a regular basis, people realize that, and, and a lot of times it comes on the heels of a great deal of failure from the standpoint of I've tried this and I've tried this and I've tried this and I've tried this and I'm still struggling. And so I will sometimes have people in that position of feeling like everything's a failure. Like what else are you going to give me? Because everything that I've tried thus far hasn't produced the result I'm looking for. So I, I think that a lot of times my approach is different. And so it offers somebody the idea that, okay, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to trust that maybe I'm at least going to explore the opportunity or the option that this could be a tool. And so I think that there is to an extent, a trend, um, or a, an openness perhaps to it being an option because so many people in this, I mean, this is, this is a downfall, unfortunately, of my profession is that people are in therapy for 30 years or 10 or 15 years. Why is that? Well, that would lead me to believe in most cases that there's not a whole lot of progress going on. And so if that's the case, we can harness that to an extent and say, okay, so um, this hasn't worked. I wonder, and I ask, I, I present things a lot of the time in that I wonder if we tried this, or I wonder if this would make a difference. Would you be up for it? Could we try it? So in, in that vein, um, I think a lot of people are primed to see it as an option or primed to see it as a tool because they've experienced so many failures. And oftentimes the failures have been extremely expensive and the failures have created a great deal of side effects or other consequences or ramifications. And so with that thinking, if I offer something that's free, or I, I mean, obviously you have to buy but, but essentially we have to eat. So I'm not asking you to spend thousands of dollars on something. I'm not asking you to do something that's totally insurmountable. I'm asking you to try something. Let's see how it goes. And it's something that's easily accessible. So I think there is a great deal of potential in that arena, but we need more people who are on board with that as far as practitioners go. And that's, I think those are few and far between, honestly. Agreed. Well, in the meantime, that makes your, your services that much more valuable. So that's the yeah. good, good news from your yeah. own business yeah. model. Right, um, right. <laughs> tell me this, um, you know, there's this school of thinking that things like depression and anxiety are caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain. When did you start to question that paradigm and what prompted you to just not buy into that whole model? Hmm. Okay. So, um, my graduate school experience believed fully that that's what the source of depression and anxiety, really many, um, mental disorders is it's a chemical imbalance. Well, if it's a chemical imbalance that removes a lot of responsibility from me, or if I'm the client or it removes a lot of responsibility because, well, it's just, it's my brain. I can't do anything about that. And anytime that we remove responsibility, it really places us in a position of powerlessness because if that's just the way that I am and that's just the way that I'm built, 
then I can't really do anything other than Medicaid. So that was the perspective I came out of. Very quickly, like I said, I, I, I did try, I was so interested in learning that I did try to kind of stick my foot out into the realm of how does the whole body work, not just the mental health. And, and so that was kind of the, the, you know, the, the introduction into that. And then I think it was about um, probably, trying to think, probably about 10, 10 years ago, I would say maybe, I started to maybe even question a little bit more. And, and early on in my practice, I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but early on in my practice, based upon my training, I would tell people, you know, sometimes there is a chemical imbalance. And so I think it would be wise for you to get on some medication. I hate that I even can admit that, but that's where I can, that was the training I came out of. And, and so um, probably about 10 years ago, I really started to question that. And one of the people, Dr. Peter Bregan is one of the main people that I started to learn even more about. I had already been questioning, but then I, I took a couple of courses um, with him and he just opened my eyes in a way that I had never understood. I, at that point, when I met him and started learning more from him, and he's a psychiatrist, but um, I already had established, I already believed that it wasn't a chemical imbalance. And so I had stopped telling people that. I had definitely stopped telling people to get medicated. Um, and so that that happened probably a little bit longer than that ago. But but um, my reading and my research really led me to, to understand if it's a chemical imbalance, like where does that come from? And how do we rectify it? And why would some people have that and other people did? It just didn't make sense. And if you dig into the research, there's nothing to back up that claim. And, and the moment that you defy or deny the idea that it's a chemical imbalance, it opens up this entire world for people. Because if it's not about a chemical imbalance in my brain, my options are endless mm. as far as what I can do. And my tools are so accessible. And so, um, that that's kind of how the process happened. I mean, it was really, I learned to do what I do now, which is vastly different than what I did 17 or 18 years ago. Um, I learned that I had to research and learn and analyze and dig deep on my own. There is very little that I still use from my training from graduate school. There's hardly anything that I use from that model anymore. It's been all after the fact. And that's one of the biggest things that, I, that I've learned, that I've been able to research, that I've been able to understand is that there's nothing that backs up that claim. And that really places people in such a position of helplessness that I'm doing them a disservice by even believing that. But it was a, it was a lengthy process and it did take me a long time but it makes such a distinct difference. And in fact, I just had somebody um, contact me yesterday, a past client who's talking about getting off of a medication and, and basically saying, thank you that you helped me to understand how to do that slowly. And here's my success story. Mm. And so, I mean, I think those are the you know, that's a driving force. That's some, that's, it's one of those stories that, okay, this, this is, 
a, a perfect demonstration of how not falling into that pattern opens up this beautiful array of tools and success stories. Wow. That's really, again, inspiring, but also just so troubling that that's what people are being taught in grad school and going yeah. on to become therapists and counselors. Mm -hmm. What would you say is driving that model of thinking of, of teaching that there's a chemical imbalance? Is it simply big pharma and profits or is it lack of accountability and personal responsibility or something else? You know, I think it's a combination of things. I do think farm, big pharma has such a hand in it and, and money. Um, you know, the other thing that I think drives it, and this would kind of fall into that big pharma position, it may come as a surprise to some people, but the, but the, prescri the people who prescribe the most psychiatric medications, which attaches to that idea that it's a chemical imbalance, are primary care physicians. Hmm. So primary care physicians get, I think, one module in mental health. And they are the predominant people prescribing these medications to people. Somebody comes in, my, my, my father just passed away. I'm struggling. Oh, I think that you need some medication. You probably have a chemical imbalance. Well, how crazy is that? I'm experiencing a normal reaction to a very sad, very difficult event, but I have this medical doctor who's saying you need to be on this. Well, then that leads me to believe there's something wrong with me. There's that chemical imbalance. Well, then I, I, you know, maybe talk to somebody, oh, you're struggling. Oh, well, when I got on that medication, so it becomes kind of this snowball effect society-wise. And that I think drives, it's kind of like this whole cycle. It drives then what people are being taught in school from like, from my perspective, if that's what people are coming to counselors for asking for, you know, and, and mm -hmm not just the medication from a medical doctor, but then, oh, and by the way, maybe you should talk to a therapist. Well, then I go to a therapist. Well, what is a therapist going to say to this person? Well, yeah, that's a good idea. In order for us to work on your stuff, you do need to be medicated. Well, then that feeds into that whole kind of medical mill idea. And, and I know I'm kind of jumping around here, but I think it is kind of this like weird array that all fits together. So if I'm a counselor and I go to a, or if I'm a student and I go to a school and they're not buying into that narrative and they're not suggesting medication and they're not saying it's a chemical imbalance, then they stand out and who's not going to support them? Well, big pharma's not going to support them and our university is going to support that kind of like, are they going to get any support if they're telling a completely different narrative? No, they're not. Now, here's the other piece that I think is really important too. Like I said, I came out of graduate school feeling like I had no idea what I was doing because the, the information that was fed to us really didn't help me in practice and it didn't help to answer questions that I was running into. Now, a lot of times what practitioners will do is, well, that's just the way it is. And you, you are in therapy for 20 or 30 years or for the rest of, this is another narrative. Once you... Um, have a mental struggle, you're going to be in therapy for the rest of your life. So there's that narrative too. And if that's the case, then most people, I would say, or at least a, a big number of people say, well, this is just the way it is. You have clients that come to you 
for forever. Now here's another component, insurance companies. Insurance companies want to reimburse based on a diagnosis. I can't bill, in, I don't use insurance anymore, but when I did, I had to, in order to bill an insurance company, I had to provide a diagnostic code. You could not get insurance reimbursement unless I said you had a problem. So then that feeds into the whole idea of, well, there's gotta be something, there's gotta be some reason for that. And if there's medication involved, well, then that feeds into that whole mill of nonsense. And so I think it's driven by a lot of things. And one of the other aspects is I think professors and the professionals who are providing the training they have so convinced themselves by not questioning that this is the way it is, that they don't, they're not trying to be deceptive. They believe it themselves because they haven't questioned and they haven't researched. Mm-hmm. And it took, I mean, it has taken me basically my entire practice to feel like I, I, you know, I, I, somebody comes to me with an issue and it's not like, oh my gosh, I don't know how to handle this because I don't believe this, but then I don't have the tools for this. And where did that come from? It came from personal study and and digging in to what really is going on. And that comes, that's a lot of work. (laughs) And it has, you have to take a lot of intentionality not to say, oh my gosh, I just spent how much money going to graduate school and now I have to do all of this on my own. (laughs) So I think that's the reason why um, people don't come out of that and develop a different viewpoint and why universities are not, they're not telling a different story. It is fueled by narratives and money and the, the you know, the piece that doctors play and the piece that psychiatrists, I mean, all of it, it's just, it's kind of a jumbled mess. But. Right, right. So interesting. I have so, so many directions I could head in, but um, I'll mention that in my own mental health journey, I found a lot of help from things like cognitive behavioral therapy, which is identifying how my brain thinks and the tracks that my brain goes down. And some, some of those are just more productive and helpful than others. It's not a question of right or wrong. It's just some serve me better than others. And then I'm also trained in a type of therapy called internal family systems or IFS (laughs) therapy. And what I love about IFS therapy is that it involves facilitating a dialogue between the client and the different parts of her personality. So essentially all of the answers are coming from the client. It's not that hierarchical model model that you describe of diagnosing somebody with a neurosis and then figuring out what that person should do. It's just asking questions and all the answers are coming from the client. So all that being said, what's your particular approach to counseling? Is there a particular model or approach that you use? Yeah. So I do, um, cognitive behavioral therapy is my, my model. And even with that being said, I think any good therapist is going to draw from the wisdom of other models as well. Um, but that is my predominant focus. And, and it really, you know, one of the, I think one of the cornerstones of CBT is that it doesn't rely upon circumstances changing, which I think a lot of times people look, well, if I can't, you know, I need to change this circumstance or I need to change this person or whatever. And, and with CBT, circumstances may not be changeable. Circumstances may be absolutely devastating. Circumstances may be, um, you know, housed in the position of, I have absolutely no control, but what I 
always can control, what I can always look at is the foundation of my belief, where it comes from, what dialogue comes out of that foundational belief, what emotions tie into that mix, and then ultimately what my behavior looks like. And, and one of the things that I love about the CBT model is it doesn't look at um, a behavior per se, because we can change a behavior. But if we don't deal with what's underlying that behavior, all we're doing is switching one bad behavior for another. It will manifest itself in some other fashion. And so with CBT, it really looks at the root. We don't want to look what's on the surface. We want to look at the root of the problem. And one of the other things is that CBT is kind of known for not sit, not going um, into the past in great detail. Now, I think there's some caveats to that, and I probably stretch that a little bit, but, but there is not value in staying in the past, in the regrets and the sadness and the loss and the struggle. There's no value in sitting there. And that's, that's rumination. However, our past does give us a great deal of data on our present and our future, our upbringing, the things we've walked through, the adversity, all of those things do help me understand who I am now. They help me to um, recognize the strengths that I have and the weaknesses and how I've used coping mechanisms and patterns and all of that. So the past sheds a great deal of light on the present. Um, and so if I can utilize the past as, as a tool with the intention of moving forward, then the past holds some value. We are affected by one of the things that I, I say lots and lots and lots of times is we need to be affected by our past. That's inevitable. We, we are going to be affected by what we've walked through and yet we don't wanna be defined by our past. And so we dip into the past to learn about where we are today, but then we leave the past in the past. We don't dwell there. And then, it, and then we, we really allow that to be the kind of the initial piece of the process of digging below the surface and looking at the root of the problem. Because if we look at the root of the problem and we fix that piece, we work with that piece, we accommodate tools that will allow us to do that, then my dialogue changes and my emotions change and ultimately my behavior changes. So I love the progression of that, how, how well-rounded it is. It's not a, oh, don't talk about the past. You can't talk about the past. It's totally irrelevant. We can never go there. But it's also not staying there because there's no goodness in that. We don't find healing in that. And so, um, like I said, I'll draw, you know, sometimes tools from other models, but that's really what I utilize as my main driving model. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, so you, you had mentioned, you know, a lot of people being in therapy for 20 or 30 years and not seeing results. How quickly do you tend to see people improve? And do they typically reach a point where they don't feel therapy is necessary anymore? Yeah. So that's always the, you know, the question that, that the answer is, well, it really does depend on the individual, which is not a great answer, <laughs> but obviously it does. Um, and, and it's such a variable, um, uh, answer, I would say, because I have some people who come with such deep trauma that has been sitting within them for 20 years. Those types of people are going to be in therapy for longer than six sessions, for example. 
Um, and sometimes I do see clients for, um, you know, a, a couple of years, and that seems like a really long period of time, but part of it does boil down to how able that person is to utilize the tools given, how willing they are, how much responsibility they're going to take for the process. And so there's, there are so many different factors. Now, with that being said, I will typically, I mean, generally speaking, people will start off with a weekly session. As soon as I am able, I push that out and say, you know what, I think, I think we've got some really good tools to work with. I think we should probably skip a week. Let's go to every other week or let's go to once a month. I think we just need some maintenance right now. A lot of, I mean, that's the point. And I tell people that I'll, I'll tell them and I say it in kind of a joking manner. I, I know you don't want to hang out with me for the rest of your life. So we're going to work to push this out to the extent that you don't need to, you don't need to come and see me anymore because my goal is to equip you with the tools that you need to approach the problems you'll encounter moving forward. So not just with what you're dealing with right now, but what you may come into contact with later on. And so I will have some people who will come for a couple of sessions and that's all. Mm -hmm. I have some people who will come, you know, every month for three years. I will, you know, so it really, it really depends. But one thing that is very certain is that it is a much um, quicker process. The CBT model is a much quicker process um, than most therapy models. And, and, and the other thing is too, one thing that I always do with people, and I tell them this up front, that we can get a lot done in an hour, in an hour session in a week. I mean, we can get a lot done. But you are going to be so much more effective in your process, in your healing journey. If I equip you with tools and you use the tools between our sessions, and that's my goal for you. I don't want you to have to come in in order to see progress every week. And so I give homework to my clients every week. It's extremely rare that I don't do so, so that they are actively involved in the process on a consistent basis. It's not one time a week. It's all week long that they're working on that. So there is variability, but I would say, I mean, my goal is to do that, to equip the people and to, to move them to a less frequent schedule as soon as possible. And, um, and, and I'll prompt, I'll kind of push that, you know, I think because, because clients oftentimes don't really want to do that. They don't want to go to less frequent. They want somebody to be able to talk to, but that too mm. can hinder the process. Mm. So. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so in your practice, um, it sounds like you're seeing both vegans and non-vegans. This mm -hmm. is kind of a loaded question, but I'm wondering if you see a notable difference in sort of the overall level of just emotional adjustment and happiness between the vegans and non-vegans. So mm -hmm. for the vegans, do you see them like happier and better adjusted overall because they're living a healthy lifestyle or do they tend to be more stressed out and worked up over the things that they're aware of? That is a loaded question. So I have a couple mm -hmm. of different directions on that. <laughs> um, I think in large part, the vegans are happier. And part of the reason is if you think about, um, and obviously this is a bit of a drastic um, example, but if you think about somebody who is 50 pounds overweight, they're coming home from work, they're eating a bag of potato chips, drinking two sodas, having cheese pizza for dinner, um, eating a pint of ice cream before bed. Um, they're not going to feel good about themselves. 
they're not going to feel motivated to do anything. They're not going to have the energy to do anything. Their muscles are probably going to hurt. Their stomach's not going to feel well. They're going to feel badly about themselves, you know, all of those things. And then you take another person who, you know, they come home, they put on some workout gear, they take a, a you know, go, go have a jog. They eat a well-rounded dinner, you know, a plant-based dinner. Um, maybe they'll have some dessert, but you know, it's an apple and peanut butter or it's one cookie or, you know, something of that nature. That person is not going to feel the same level of disgust in their body. They're not going to feel as though, oh my gosh, I did it again. Um, their stomach's probably not going to hurt their muscles and joints or, and, and again, I'm, I'm using some pretty broad parameters here, but sure. that is a very obvious difference. The things that we put into our bodies directly affect the way that we feel about ourselves, directly affect our ability to process things. I mean, if I were to eat, I mean, I cannot even imagine doing this, but if I were to eat a bag of potato chips and drink, um, I don't even drink soda, but let's just pretend that I drank soda and then I had three Oreos and then um, I had, I don't know, I had ice cream before bed. I wouldn't be able to think. I wouldn't be able to process anything. I certainly wouldn't be able to read or um, or think through a complicated situation. My mind would be on, oh my gosh, I feel so gross. I don't feel, you know, I mean, I just, I wouldn't be able to, to function optimally. So in that regard, it's an enormous difference. And not only that, I think a lot of times the, the vegans versus non-vegans, the non-vegans, a lot of times I think just assume failure. Like, I assume that I'm not going to be able to get out of this pattern. I assume this is too hard because I think a lot of times vegans, their process has been not just like, oh yeah, I just became vegan and it's no big deal. And it's not hard. And, you know, it was just a simple process. A lot of times it is a more difficult process, whether that's dealing with family members or it's a change in the, the, the taste palette or the change in cooking or shopping or whatever. And so to an extent, they have a different way of approaching challenge. And that ties into the mix as well. Um, and so I think those are a, a couple of things that I notice. Um, something else though, that I think is important um, to mention, it's kind of the opposite answer. Sometimes I think vegans struggle more with certain things because they understand on a deeper level. So, if there's a really complicated, you know, complicated thing going on, they may have the mental ability to see below the surface and to see what's really going on in a different way than somebody who's not questioning what's being given to them. So if, if somebody's eating the standard American diet and they're listening to whatever is pumped out in commercials or at the grocery store, what their doctor's telling them, they're not thinking, they're not questioning. They're just going along. And so in that regard, I think sometimes the vegans struggle more because they get it and they understand on a deeper level. So that's good because I think we need to do that. But sometimes they feel the weight of that in a far stronger fashion, if that makes sense. Right. Of course. Yeah. And of course, whole books have been written on this topic. In fact, you may be familiar with Melanie Joy's book, Why We Wear Cows, Love Dogs and Eat Pigs. I think yes. that book 
began as a dissertation <laughs> regarding who's who's happier overall is it right. is it the vegans or the non-vegans yes. um so shifting gears a little bit okay um what would you you mentioned kind of the utter uselessness in many respects of your graduate school education what would you suggest for someone who is interested in a career in the the psych world what sort of training would you recommend that's a great question um you know the benefit i i am glad that i went to graduate school because what that enabled me to do was to go into private practice to um, in the beginning, now, like I said, I don't do this anymore, but in the beginning, it opened up a lot of doors because I could be independent on my own. I didn't have to be under the supervision of anybody. You know, I could open up, hang out my shingle and have my own practice. And, um, and, and so that was a big thing. I could build insurance. I could, you know, have liability insurance, all of those things. Um, and so it opens up that door. And even though, so in, in hindsight, I wouldn't have changed going to graduate school because it did allow me to get my degree. It allowed me to then proceed on to the credentialing process of you know taking the national boards and getting licensed and all of that. And so for that, I'm thankful. Um, but a, a couple of things along with that, one of the other benefits is if I were not licensed, which there are some positions you can do, you know, you can be in, in the mental health field where you don't have to be licensed, but they all require um, a supervisor or an umbrella organization. Mm -hmm. You're working for somebody else. And that was always such a turnoff to me because I didn't want somebody telling me how to practice. I didn't want somebody telling me that I had to recommend something. I didn't, I didn't want any of that. And so that is something that I've been, I have never outside of when I first started. So when I first came out of graduate school and went through the process of licensure, I did have to be under supervision. I was practicing, but I did have to be under supervision for a certain period of time while I got all of my hours, took my board examinations, things like that. But it was a beautiful thing. We had, after I came out of the licensure process, we just stayed in, in, in a partnership. Um, but he never told me what I had to do. He never dictated any of that. So I had a very beautiful, unique situation there, but that's not um, the norm. And I, I've never worked under anybody in, in my practice. And that opens up so many doors because I don't have to check any boxes. I don't have to do anything that is in accordance with an organization or whatever. And so that has enabled me to go the path that I've gone. Mm. So in that regard, if you want to hang out your own shingle, if you want to be in private practice, you do have to go through a licensure process. You do have to get training. Now, a couple of things that I would mention, there are some tracks that, um, that you can go in that kind of are more in the realm of coaching or um, advising people in like lifestyle counseling or things of that nature that are kind of in that realm of helping people deal with some problems, things like that. But you do have to, you have to be careful because there's some pretty crazy stuff out there in that regard as well. And so, um, you know, if you're not looking to have a private practice, if you're not looking to, um, you know, do what I do and have that kind of a, 
um, an avenue to help people, well, then there might be a little bit more leeway. But I probably would suggest, and this requires a lot of work, but what I would, what I would suggest is that, um, well, two things I would say. Um, Dr. Bregan actually has some training programs through Wellness Forum um, that do some training, kind of lay training. Now, again, you can't go and present yourself as a therapist, but there are people in that regard that get some training and essentially turn it into some form of a business. And I haven't done that before. So I think there are some hoops you have to jump through in that regard, but that would be an option. Um, one of the things though, in addition to the ability to get licensed and be able to have a, a private practice and be able to do your own thing, um, in addition to that, there were some very fundamental things like when I went to graduate school, I didn't know all of the diagnoses and all and, and what people might be coming to me for. Now, I think there are some pretty ludicrous diagnoses in the DSM that I just should not be in there. And it's changed so many times, but, but it did give me a foundational knowledge of some things to look for. Now, I don't diagnose anybody anymore um, formally. Uh, because I don't really think that it's a, a, a useful process. All it does is label people. But from the standpoint of learning about um, the different things that I might encounter, the different things that people would present with, um, I got a very, very, very basic idea of theory. So of, you know, the different models. And so I did learn about cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, uh, there were some things like suicide, um, you know, dealing with suicide with people and how to walk through. That was very much um, a process of role playing and things like that. That was helpful. My internships, I got to choose where I did my internships. That was helpful. So there were pieces, but I would probably say if you want to go into practice as a therapist, I would struggle through gain as much as you can, know that you're going to have to trash a lot of what you, what you take in. And I, well, I'll mention one other thing in a second, but, but if you do that and simultaneously or after the fact you dig in and do your own research, you'll be well-equipped to have a practice that you can really help people. And you can, I mean, that can be your profession. So you kind of check the box off, you get your license, you do that. And then you have to kind of do your second degree on your own. And that's, <laughs> um, but, but I think, so in that regard, I think there's still value in that. Um, even though it's, it's a tough, I mean, it's a tough thing because you do have to trash a lot of what they do. Now, with that being said, I did kind of go out on a limb and do some things that were not uh, the norm, like some of the papers I decided to research and investigate. Um, so there, there is some, some ability to kind of branch out and do some research and still be in the parameters of the program. And I did that, you know, with certain things, I can't remember all of them, but I remember, you know, I'm not learning anything about this. So I'm going to house my research in, in this arena. And that gave me opportunity to learn while I was in the process of, you know, doing the degree program. So that would be my take on it. Great. Great. Thank you. Um, so on a more personal level, what specific dietary ap approaches have you tried when it comes to your veganism? 
Um, originally, um, I my my one and only goal was to convince my family that eating vegan was really good. <laughs> and so um, I didn't worry about fat. I didn't worry about processed stuff. I just wanted my family to realize that we could eat that way. Mm. So um, I fried a lot, which I'm embarrassed to say now. <laughs> um, and I did use, you know, I tried some of the alternatives like cheese alternatives, but back then they were disgusting. So that didn't last. Um, and, you know, I did some of the like, um, uh, you know, prepared satan or things of that nature to just try and introduce my family and convince them it was okay. Mainly my husband. I was really trying to convince my husband we could eat this way. And he told me originally, he said, I'll give you a week. <laughs> and he still eats mainly vegan. So, and that was a long time ago. So, um, so that was the first approach, just make it taste good. And then I really started trying to go more away from anything processed and make everything myself. So I would make my own seitan and I would make like everything was from scratch. I stopped buying anything, you know, that was prepackaged. Um, and, but still it wasn't super low fat. It wasn't, I mean, I was just still trying to like slowly make the progression. Um, and then I, um, and then I really transitioned through being connected with Pam Popper and Wellness Forum Health. I realized, oh my goodness, we're ingesting enormous amounts of fat. And I had always been a low fat cooker actually. And then we became vegan and it was like fat everywhere. And so, um, I started to move more into, you know, we really got to cut this down, um, and, and took away a lot of the fat. Again, we had already moved out of the processed stuff in large part. Um, and so it was more low fat and then really over time, it has become very, very simple. And what I mean by that is, you know, a, a very frequent meal would be, we're doing potatoes and we're doing maybe a grain and we're doing a whole bunch of veggies, you know, this one's roasted and this one's steamed and that's what we're having for dinner. Or we're having sweet potatoes and a, an array of vegetables, you know, just taking it to a really simple position where I don't make extravagant recipes anymore. For one thing, I don't have time, but also my family is really great having like, okay, I'm going to, you know, slice up potatoes and we're going to have baked potato fries and a pile of vegetables. And maybe we'll have some, you know, or my family will have some bread on the side or something like that. Like it doesn't have to be exciting and we really enjoy simple stuff. And I probably, well, definitely the most, I'm so happy to eat the most simple things. It doesn't have to be a sauce and, uh, you know, a green and a this and a that. Like I've just, I've simplified in large part, which has made it such a doable process. And, and in addition to that, my kids can make a meal and it's not a big deal because this is just the way we eat. And it doesn't have to be that you have to make this big extravagant thing. Um, I, I, you know, we eat very, very low fat, um, not adding, you know, oil to sauteing vegetables. I never add oil to baking anything, you know, vegetables or anything like that. And that was a progression too. Like, oh yeah, I can make oven fries, but I'm going to toss them in a little bit of oil. Well, I would never do that now. So we've really transitioned away from doing that as well. Um, and so that, I mean, it's, it, it's not that we followed like a specific diet per se, but that's kind of been the progression to now. 
Um, and, and we're also very, you know, routinized in a lot of ways. Um, you know, on Sundays, we always have the same breakfast. My husband and I eat a big salad for dinner every single night as our main dish. You know, so I mean, we've, we've established some things that are, that we love that we don't really veer, you know, which is kind of easy too, because if I know it's for dinner every night, we're all kind of just accustomed to that, you know? So that's kind of been the progression, even though it wasn't like we followed this diet and then this diet and so on. Yeah. What tips would you have for people who are raising vegan families or trying to get their families to eat vegan, especially kids? Yes. So, um, the way that I, um, have done it and I've changed a little bit in the beginning. I was like, okay, we all have to be vegan and this, we're going to do this together and we can't be eating this awful stuff anymore. And we really have to do it. Well, I was, I was so passionate about it that I pushed too much (laughs) and it came to a point, like I was trying to sneak different kinds of creamer into my husband's coffee like trying to see if he wouldn't notice. (laughs) I'm like, you have to stop eating dairy. It's so bad for you. You have to stop. And he's like, oh my goodness, you have to stop giving me this awful stuff. I hate all of it. And so one of the things that I would suggest is not to push and pressure and try to force your passion onto your family because it doesn't usually go very well. It was really when I backed off that my husband eventually came to the point to say, I'm not doing dairy anymore. I I get it. I know it's not good for me. I'm not going to do it. And he kind of, it was, it was more the transition of, I won't do it at home, but yeah, I'll have some cheese on something when I go out or if I'm at somebody's house, that kind of thing. And he eventually transitioned to, he doesn't eat any dairy whatsoever. And that really was me backing off and letting him make the decision on his own. And it was an example that, that I set And then he slowly made his way over to that place as well. And so looking for opportunity to make great food and to introduce new things and to show that this is a great way of eating, like we can enjoy this food. It's not like drudgery to sit down at the dinner table um, without forcing the passion on them because they may not feel the same way that we do. The other thing with my kids, um, like I said, my kids were pretty young. And so they were trying these things along with us. And there were some things they didn't like. And I let them, um, you know, again, if we were at somebody else's house, they would eat whatever if we went out to eat, they could choose. And, um, and, and over the course of time, I started recognizing, oh, we had a birthday party and you ate cake and ice cream. And then we were at grandma's house and you had this. And we were at auntie's house and you had that. No, you were at a friend's house. And it became too frequent where, yeah, we were eating vegan at home, but then they were going to these different places. And I was very, I was always very careful. Like, no, you can't have candy long before the vegan thing, or, you know, no, you can't have dessert every day and you're not allowed to have soda. You know, I mean, so there were already some things in place, but I started realizing that this is becoming more than just a a treat. This is becoming five times a month that you're having this food. And okay, so for a lot of people, they're like, oh, five times, well, that's (laughs) not a big deal. But they did never lose the taste for it because when they were still eating it on a fairly regular basis, they didn't lose the taste for it. I knew what it was doing in their bodies and it was forming a habit. And so I came to the point where I'm like, okay, I've got to have a conversation with my kids because I don't want to put, I'm the parent, 
But at the same time, I want them to be able to be part of the decision to make healthy choices. So I presented them. I had a sit down conversation with them and I said, all right, here's the deal. So um, we can keep going as is, and you can have the, you know, occasional birthday cake, food at somebody's house, you know, things like that. Um, or you can, I will, I will for you, um, at this time they were still eating meat. And so I said, I will purchase meat and cook, cook some kind of meat for you two to three times a week. It'll be organic. There will be no dairy involved. And I will, I will let you have that two to three times a week moving forward. If there's a birthday party, I will provide a very special treat for you to take with you, or you can come home and have a special treat. Um, but you can have that, or I'm not going to buy any meat. I'm not going to buy special treats at home. Those instances, even if it's, you know, if it's two times a month or if it's five times a month, that's your only outside of our parameters that you get to have. So we're going to leave it in your court. Um, and I want you to make the decision. Do you want to have the guarantee that you're going to have these things and eat this way at home? Or do you want the possibility to have something that you're really wanting once, twice, maybe four or five times a month? And they both decided that they would rather have the guarantee. And so we transitioned to, if they went to a party and there was cake and ice cream, and again, we did cold turkey on the dairy. There was no more dairy. Um, but I would send something, I would ask the, the mom and say, would it be okay if I send something for my kids? Um, it would always be something that was special or they'd get to come home and have that special treat. I would leave that up to them. If we went to a family member's house, either I would bring food to contribute or they would just eat side dishes. For example, if we went out to eat, we would only go to restaurants that had vegan options. Um, and so we transitioned to that. They were both very amenable to that. And eventually my oldest decided he didn't want to eat any of it anymore. And so he's my vegan, um, my younger son. And part of, if it were up to me, we would all be vegan, but I am married and my husband does not want to go down that route and to be purely vegan. And so I felt like I had to have a little bit of leeway because we didn't agree on that. He fully believes that eating vegan is, is totally fine. He just doesn't want to do it. And so I felt like I had to give a little bit of leeway for my younger son who didn't want to become a vegan because if he sees dad doing it, what kind of a message does that portray? And so I did leave that in his court. And so he is in the position of he has organic meat a couple of times. I'm not crazy about that. I wish that there was nothing. Um, but that was a, a, a decision that we had to make that um, is still far better than what we did before. And we have, we talk about it. We have conversations about it. We um, talk about the value behind why, what, you know, what we do. Um, and again, I mean, my oldest son, I love it that my oldest son is in my corner and would never kill a thing. And, you know, we're on that same page, but it's a workable scenario. And I think sometimes when we have the idea that everybody has to do it exactly like we do, or it's not okay, or we break up the family, or I don't think that's a wise way to go either. Um, and I think it's encouraging to know that even if the entire family doesn't go 
in that direction, we can still make that decision and it can be a completely doable, beautiful thing. And we can still draw our family along in many ways. I mean, what we, what our family used to eat compared to what it is now vastly different. Um, and so that's kind of been the progression for, for our family and everybody's on board with that. And my boys at this point, since it's been so long, um, they're the ones, I mean, they frequently will point out, oh, I'm so glad we don't eat that way. Or it's pro that's probably why, I mean, they, my youngest son, especially, um, well, that's probably why they feel so yucky or that's probably why they're having such a hard time. Or can you imagine what that person must feel like eating that way? So they've picked up on the value of that too. Right. That's fascinating. And thank you for sharing that. It's, yeah. it's so interesting living as a vegan because we have these values that we seek to uphold. And at the same time, we need to live in the real world. And you already had a family that you obviously had relationships with. And I, I speak a lot about Will Tuttle, who's author of a book called The World's Peace Diet. And he really emphasizes that we're against herding animals, H-E-R-D-I-N-G, herding and exploiting animals and kind of getting them to do things. So we can't apply that herding mentality to carrying the vegan message of, you know, hurting people into going vegan, yes. like it's yes. closer to the very vegan message. Right. So right. that's really um, interesting to hear about, you know, the workable solution that you came up with for your family. How yeah. old, how old was your older son when he decided to go fully vegan? Oh, let's see. I think he was about, gosh, I think he was probably about 11, maybe oh, 11. Wow. So 12, it's been a while. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's been a while. And that was really, that was his decision. Mm -hmm. Um, and he's, you know, he's gotten a lot of flack from it, uh, you know, at school he gets, especially, mm -hmm. uh, early on, he got made fun of a lot, not in a mean way, but in a, Oh, you're not healthy. How can you be healthy? You, you know, and now he just takes it in stride and doesn't, you know, it doesn't phase him and his friends know and work around it, always make sure that he has options. And, you know, it's just, it, it becomes a non-issue. Everybody knows that my kids are not going to eat the cake and ice cream. And everybody knows that, oh, they're coming over for, you know, a sleepover or a birthday party. Oh, okay. Well, either I send something or they provide something, but it's just, it's a non-issue anymore. And I think that's one of the challenges. A lot of times parents think, oh, but they'll stick out and they'll be embarrassed at the birthday party. No, that, that's something that once you build it as a value mm -hmm. and you practice it regularly, it's not like here and there every once in a while, kind of like you lose the taste for something you don't eat anymore. Mm -hmm. But likewise, it just becomes built into the way that we do life. Totally doable. Right. And also I think there's so much value in building that muscle in kids of being willing to stick out and be different if, if it's something that they believe in, um, because how many poor decisions are made because people are trying to fit in, you know, yes. that much more so for kids. So even right. though it's difficult, it's also valuable, I would think. Right. I think you're absolutely right. And that's something, I mean, we've, we've been different in so many different ways. And so every time that we do take a stand on something, it's still hard, but my kids really have been raised 
to stand out. And I think that's a good thing. I don't want them to blend into society for so many different reasons. (laughs) Yes. Do stick out. Again, we talk about why we stand Mm. out. Mm. And we talk about the value behind it, which ultimately is going to foster their ability to do so. If it's a because I told you so, they're not going to want to do it. It's going to be a constant. They understand the value behind it. Right. Right. Um, Well, Kylie, this has been a fascinating conversation. I could talk to you for hours longer, but um, we'll we'll start wrapping it up. Um, I just wanted to mention you had alluded to Pam Popper's Wellness Forum Health, and I just wondered if you could say a little more about that organization and how you came in contact with them. And, um, for, for the listeners, that's where I first encountered Kylea was, was through Pam Popper's groups. Yeah. So, um, Pam Popper is the, um, director of wellness forum health and it's a a wellness company in Ohio. And, um, it, it's a, an educational, um, organization who, um, they, they have courses and certifications and, um, classes that you can take in diet and lifestyle and nutrition. And I mean, really a whole host of things. We have a whole branch of mental health and, and, um, that's uh, the, the way that I got into contact with, with Dr. Pam is I was dealing with some health struggles. This was during that time period in which I had gone mostly vegan because of health, um, but had not accomplished the level of health I was looking for. And so, Um, Somebody told me, my mom actually told me about Dr. Pam and I was desperate. I had gone through excruciating procedures, trying to figure out what was going on because I was not well. And um, my mom told me about her. I finally reluctantly um, called her and set up an an appointment and um, joined her practice. And so she basically was my consulting um, doctor and um, she basically said, well, there, you know, there are a handful of things. I know exactly what's wrong with you. And here's how we're going to move from where we are now to the position of health. And one of those things, it was not her recommendation or her um, prompting was not to go completely vegan. Although the wellness forum health style of eating um, is plant-based, it can include that. And that's where my um, kind of format for my family two to three times you can have organic animal foods, no dairy at all. Those were a couple of the things. And so that at that moment, from that day forward, I never touched any animal product again, but um, I decided I don't want to eat any of this stuff. Um, And I had a little, a really small amount of dairy still at that time. I cut all dairy out completely. I never, ate anything that was non-vegan again from that point on. And really, I mean, ultimately she totally changed my life by the, and it was not just those two things, but, but the recommendations that she provided and the very structure of that diet of not adding oil to things and not eating, you know, the processed foods and, um, not covering a salad in nuts and seeds. And, you know, so there were some shifts and changes that, that, um, her eating plan, if you will, and it's not a diet, but it's a lifestyle. Um, those recommendations made a significant difference. And then from that point forward, I was just eating up the knowledge because there are so many classes and research opportunities and things of that nature that I jumped into full force 
and fell in love with all of the material. It was so accessible. Pam is a great teacher. There are other great um, teachers there. And then eventually that turned into, um, I'm the psychology professor for their, their institute there. Um, and then from that point, I became a referral source for them in the mental health field. And so it kind of just snowballed after that to the extent mm -hmm. that I'm very involved with the organization now, but that's kind of my wellness forum health story. Great. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, all right, Kylie. So if our listeners would like to get in touch with you, where's the best place for them to reach you? Um, I do have a website. It's called healthyonpurpose.org. And though I don't update that nearly as much as I would like to, you will find some research articles, things of that nature and ways to contact me there. Um, you can also reach me just via email. That's an easy way to connect with me if you do have any questions. And it is just my full name um, at gmail.com. I don't know if you want me to, do you want me to provide that right now? Or is that? I'll, I'll include that in the show okay. notes. So okay. We'll make so sure that's, that's an easy listed. way to get a hold of me um, because I'm, my schedule is very packed, but I can send an email at three in the morning and <laughs> not a phone call. So that's probably the easiest way to connect. And then I can talk with you. Um, you know, if somebody has a question, happy to do that via email, and then we can set up something from there. Perfect. Thank you. Um, and any, any last thoughts or anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? Well, I, one thing I'm just, I'm so excited you're doing this because I think there are so many misconceptions about the vegan lifestyle. There's so many misconceptions about how doable it is or how you, how you do it with the family or how you do it when you haven't ever done it before. I think it's just, it's so doable. And I think somebody like you who has been doing this for a long time, you have extensive knowledge and you're making it a you know, not like an exclusive class of people who can do this, but you're drawing in people from all walks of life, which helps people to understand that no matter what situation, no matter what your story is, it's doable. And just spreading the message of the goodness of this way of life and um, just making people aware, because I think there's such a stereotype that vegans are these weird people <laughs> that don't have lives and never socialize and are completely distanced from society. And it doesn't have to be that way. And I think this is a beautiful way to do that because you can read about it in a book and somebody can tell you about it. But if you're actually talking with people and hearing real life situations, what, what better way for people to recognize that they can do it too. And it doesn't have to be an insurmountable thing. Thank you. And I agree 100% in my vegan journey. I have met so many wonderful, interesting, admirable people. And it got to a point where I just didn't want those connections and those conversations to go to waste. <laughs> and so I yeah. figured what better way than a podcast that will just display these wonderful vegan humans yes. who are living these really interesting lives and thinking interesting thoughts and doing cool stuff out in the real world, not hiding away, you know, in a health yes. food store somewhere. Right. <laughs> exactly. I love it. Um, so thank you for joining us, Kylia. Um, we close by taking 30 seconds of silence for the animals. And Kylia, I invite you now to join me in 30 seconds of silence for all the suffering animals, 
human and non-human who desire, as we all do, safety, happiness, and the freedom to live out their lives without interference. We'll conclude with the sound of the bell. Thank you, Kylea, and thank you, Posse. See you next time, and until then, stay strong and stay true.